Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. And your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, I'm Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Jaina Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Today, we are going to discuss a very important subject to me and many of our listeners. It relates to coming to the United States to complete medical training or to practice medicine. As a personal story, I moved to this country in 2011 to complete medical rotations I studied for my USMLE exams, and I have to say it was one of the hardest decisions I had made, leaving family, friends, and everything you know behind. Many reasons fueled the decision for international medical graduates, aka INGs, to move to the United States. And we had the pleasure of discussing this very important subject with two dear colleagues. For some of the people that may not be familiar with the process, to come to the United States to practice medicine, after you complete medical school, you need to take the USMLE exams, which are your boards, and then transition to a match to go into residency. Also, there's a possibility of moving after you have completed all your training. We'll be discussing both options in this episode of Lung Cancer Concerted with Dr. Marina Garasino, an international recognized expert in the treatment of thoracic malignancies. Dr. Garasino graduated from the Medical School of the Università degli Stati of Milan, and I apologize for my Italian, in Italy, where she also completed her training in medical oncology. She also recently joined the University of Chicago as the Chief of Thoracic Oncology Group. Welcome, Marina. Hello. Hello, everyone. And we also have Dr. Suresh Bramalingan, who is the Executive Director of the Winship Cancer Institute at Emory University and the Roberto Coisueta Distinguished Chair for Cancer Research and a Professor of Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Bramalingan completed her medical school in India and then proceeded to do internal medicine residency at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, and his fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Welcome. Thank you, Narjust, and nice to be with you and Marina today. So first, I would like to congratulate both of you and very successful careers in medicine and thoracic oncologists. As friends, we're going to be addressing each other's by first name moving forward. Suresh, you moved to the U.S. after completing medical school in India, can you please tell us about your experience going to medical school back home and what influenced your decision of leaving and coming here and also pursuing thoracic oncology? Absolutely. You know, the whole process of completing medical school in India and then coming to residency training and fellowship training in the U.S., I would describe that as a journey in and of itself. It is not something that you decide and actuate within a short period of time. It required months and even a couple of years of planning from starting the idea to finally making the move. It was a time in the 90s where information was not readily available. It was around the time internet was coming in. 
So it wasn't like you could Google something and find out more details on any specific topic. A lot of this has to had to go with talking to people, phone calls, writing letters, reaching out to somebody who knew somebody who was a resident in the US who had undertaken the journey that I was hoping to take. In reality, this all came to fruition because of uh, help from a number of uh, well-intended people and kind-hearted people who wanted to see others succeed. My decision was based on the opportunity to receive advanced training in the U.S., a system where science and medicine is practiced at the cutting edge. I was also excited by the opportunities to uh, be part of research, to generate new knowledge that could improve the lives of people. And the other factor was my own background in medical school in India was, as we learned about exciting ways to take care of patients, exciting technology, how it was being integrated into patient care, the resource-constrained situation meant that a lot of what we read could not be applied in real practice. For example, in the early 90s, MRIs were being used, but in the whole city that I went to medical school had maybe two MRI machines which means that most patients did not have the chance to have imaging done through MRI. So to be in a setting where you actually can practice what you learn and use that to make treatment decisions, to use that to help patients uh, was all very exciting. And personally, from a situation where I was at, opportunities were limited. And I thought that coming to the US and receiving training would help me achieve my dreams. So that was the overarching thought behind my decision to come to the U.S. Thank you for sharing that with us. Marina, would you like to add something there? Well, so my story is clearly totally different because I came here that I was maybe already young, not not anymore young, I was old. And the story was that there are two main reasons. So the first is that I am a single mom and I got divorced maybe about 20 years ago. And I had two daughters and they wanted to do something that in particular, the first one that was much better in the United States compared to Italy. So she was one of the main reasons. The second reason is that maybe you are aware that in Italy, the environment for the women is not so easy. And although I accomplished quite a lot in the last years, so I received grants and I had a very big group, my career was not so easy because it was, I think, a world dominated by men. So only less than 10% of the women were in a position. I was the chief of the thoracic program also in Italy, but my life was not very easy because basically I was a woman. And so at a certain point of my life, although I was quite successful in the field, I just wanted to give the opportunity to my daughters to see that, first of all, they could do whatever they wanted about their life. And uh, the second was to give them a good education and to give me also the opportunity to stay in an environment which was more uh, I would say, gender balanced compared to what uh, was Italy. So basically, they are the two main reasons. It was very a suffered decision. I know that Suresh knows because I called him so many times to help me to see if it was my right decision or not. But I think that for me, it was clearly a great opportunity. 
I think that there is something else behind the, the research and also the patients that can be part of, of the decision. So here the world is totally different from Italy, and I would say also from Europe, not just from Italy. And so it's still an incredible experience. It's not just a medical experience, it's a social experience. And I'm learning every day a new culture, new cultures, I would say. And, and yes, this is why I'm here. So a, a very strange story. Thank you, Suresh and Marina, for sharing these very personal stories. What we have seen and I have heard through years of this is that there are two main reasons why people leave their life and families behind to pursue medicine in the U.S. One is our passion for research and trying to improve the field continuously as we may have more resources here. And second, I think, is outside of work, family and living situations that motivate many people to do a transition that it is no easy. And my follow-up question is related to the both of you. And I will start with Suresh. You know, we moved to the U.S. to start training. What were some of the most challenges you remember the most about this transition? Challenges they were, and they were not minor. I think something that Marina just touched on, which is adapt to the culture. There are multiple levels of adaptations that are necessary when somebody like me who grew up in India and had never been to the United States or, for that matter, never been to any country outside of India for a sustained length of time before I came here. So I would categorize the challenges as mainly in three broad themes. One is learning the, you know, at a professional level, learning the system, which is, you know, you're in a new medical system, things work very differently. And a simple example is I was taking care of a patient my first week as an intern and my senior resident said, well, this patient needs to go to a nursing home. And I didn't know what a nursing home was because the concept of nursing home is different in different parts of the world, certainly different in India. So I had to politely ask him, what exactly is a nursing home and how is this going to help this patient? So learning the system, learning how things work, learning how to take advantage of all the resources that were available to take good care of patients. I think that was a process uh, that took a long time. And until I was at a point of comfort where I knew, okay, I can navigate this, it, it took me a while and it was very stressful. Uh, the second thing is adapting to life in the U.S., which was not straightforward. For instance, I, as you mentioned, I did my residency training in Detroit, Michigan, and I ended up coming to the U.S. in the middle of June. My residency program started a week or two later, and my rotation for August was at the Detroit VA hospital, which was 10 miles away from where the main campus was. And there was no public transportation. So I had exactly six weeks to buy a car, to learn to drive, to get a driver's license, and feel comfortable driving on the highway to go to my rotation. So that was, and, and things like that, which were necessary to navigate day-to-day -day life was also a challenge. And finally, being away from home and family uh, from your comfort zone. And even, you know, you miss your family, you miss your parents, you miss your brother, your friends. So being in a place where you're starting from scratch and missing all of those resources that were helpful to you to help you navigate life until up that point uh, was another major challenge. 
Uh, now, I would say that the bright spot among all of these things were how helpful people around me when I came here were. You know, even though I felt hesitant to go and ask for help, people volunteered to help me. My senior residents, co-residents, co-interns, everybody gave a helping hand. And that is what made it possible to make the transition. Thank you, Suresh, for sharing that. And I have to confess that same thing happened to me with the car and the driving. So I was training in New Jersey and I needed to learn how to drive quickly, get a car and pray to what I believe is that nothing would happen to me in the freeway because we don't have those back home. It was so scared. I remember I didn't play music. I was just focused on my 10 and 2 <laughs> we driving. Absolutely. <laughs> So, Marina, your transition was after being a leader of a thoracic oncology group in Italy. What were some of these challenges that you're faced and you're still maybe facing during this transition? Well, I think that the three points that Suresh made are exactly the same. So I believe that they are the common points independently by the age when you do the transition. So the first is that when I decided to come, uh, first of all, I had the problem of the car. So the car is another common point. So um, the first is that in a global world, when, uh, when you see the United States from Europe, uh, they look similar. So I was sure that when I was here in the United States, it was very, very easy to live here because uh, basically we are doing the same things. But when I came, first of all, the language was a barrier. So I thought that maybe I could speak in ASCO, so it was easy to live in the United States, but I couldn't go to the grocery store because I was not able to ask things. And in Italy, we learn the British English. So, for example, if you ask for the canteen and not the cafeteria is different, or if you ask, so it was really hard, the language in particular in the first two months. And it is still now from, uh, I have some difficulties in understanding some accents. So the language was a barrier. The second is that the medicine is the medicine, but the systems are totally different. First of all, the majority of the European countries, they have a public health system. So um, you just don't have to pay for anything. And so we don't have all the problems uh, of billing, of doing uh, EPIC uh, or doing notes. So this part is totally from uh, very far from our reality. So it was not very easy to adjust to the new way to do medicine, in particular, as Suresh said, to be comfortable with the organization. And just to give you an idea, in Europe, uh, there are not some intermediate people like the the PAs and also the research nurse, or at least the research nurses are doing a job which is slightly different. So basically is a different system. So it was not and is still not easy to understand very well all the details. The second point is that what you feel when you come to the US is the word freedom. So you don't feel so much in Europe. So you realize the freedom when you are here because for example, the people can go to the grocery store with a pyjama. In, in Europe, this can be impossible. Maybe if you go with the pyjama to the grocery store, the police will come to arrest you. So here, there is a lot of freedom. 
But the freedom, it's something that it's really difficult to adjust. The second part that you don't understand when you are in Europe is the story of the diversities. Clearly, we have diversities also in Italy, in Europe. So, for example, in Italy, there is still a huge difference between the South and the North. But here, when I came to the University of Chicago, which is very close to the South side of Chicago, I found people that were very poor. And so I had a lot of, uh, how can I say? So it was so frustrating, my research. I'm thinking about just maybe we are developing drugs for rare targets. And maybe these people that do not have just the money to come to the hospital or for the public transportations, uh, or maybe they are just very skeptical that you are a doctor coming from a different country. So this part made me really in in a difficult situation. So I think that I changed also some part of my research because I truly believe that there are really, now I can understand much more when you are talking about uh, diversities uh, than before. So the other part is that also the university is different. So You know, the university in Italy and also in the majority of the European countries almost free. Just to give you an idea for my daughter who went to a university that was considered expensive, I paid like eight, eight thousand euros per five years. So the university is almost free in Italy. And so here you have to pay a lot, but you have also to give a lot to the students And the students are asking a lot. So I'm asking also myself, what is the future of the university now that many information are available on the web? So it was really interesting for my brain to compare the different systems and to think also about creative solutions. So there is something which is better maybe in Europe and something which is better in the United States. And so combining the two realities, I think that for me was a great enrichment, although it is very hard. Thank you, Marina, for sharing that personal perspective. And you know, going away from the script a little bit, I think we have to mention about the financial challenge that many international medical graduates face or coming to the United States. The exams are quite expensive, you know, the travel, the rotations. In my case, I have my father who privilege as a doctor supporting me financially, but you still acquire some debt during the process. So Suresh, this financial aspect, not only about your experience, but what you have seen there, what are your thoughts about that? Thanks, Narjus, for that question. Uh, It is a real challenge uh, in the sense uh, when I started this journey, I didn't know if I would have all the financial resources that are required to complete the journey. So taking the exam, for instance, the USMLE test you refer to, there was no center in India to take the test in the early 90s. So I would have to make a trip to Singapore, which was the closest center. And it's an overseas trip and it's not inexpensive and you have to go to a place where you know nobody. So you have to stay in a hotel and all the logistical expenses that come with it. So at every step, I wasn't sure if I would have enough and I was fortunate to have my parents were willing to put their lifetime savings in work to make me achieve this dream of coming to the United States for higher training. And even after coming here, there are, you know, you, you end up borrowing money from friends 
for the first two, three months of sustenance because on day one, when you get into an apartment, you have to put down a deposit and so forth. So it was definitely a huge factor in the initial days and the initial months. Certainly, it cannot be minimized. And the exam fees over the period of time for all of these components have only increased. Now, traveling from one city to the other to attend interviews, that's not inexpensive. So there are a number of financial considerations that prospective trainees or prospective international graduates who want to come to the U.S. should be aware of so that allows them to plan accordingly. I think that's very important. And Marina, the same question to you. I, we know that your transition already well established, but the financial aspect and the amount of paperwork that I can imagine that you may have completed. Can you share a little bit about this with us? Yeah, so I have a visiting license. I had really to do a lot of work, a lot of bureaucratic work. Clearly, my university was not so expensive in Italy, as I told you before. It is also true that if you are a doctor in Europe, you earn much less than in the United States. So I still believe that is unbelievable how much is expensive. As I told you, I'm here for my daughters and when I have to pay for the tuitions, I say, oh my God. So it's really a lot of money. On the other side, the salaries here are higher compared to, I would say, everywhere in Europe. Also in the countries like Germany or Switzerland, where they are, they are less poorer than here. So one point is that you have clearly to pay a lot of money. On the other side, you earn in your career much more than an Italian doctor or a Spanish doctor or an English doctor. To come here with a visiting license, you have to do a lot of work to prove that your expertise is high enough to have a license. And so this means publications, recommendation letters. You have to prove your graduation, your board in Italy, or all the boards that you have taken in all your life. So Clearly, there was the pandemic last year, and I had to hire a person that was uh, totally dedicated to help me to prepare all this material. And it was really difficult to find also this material during the pandemic, where the majority of the offices were closed. So clearly, it's totally different. And there is a huge difference between the European systems and also the U.S. systems in general. I wanted to bring with me some young doctors. This wasn't possible because they didn't have enough CV to receive a license without during, during the UCMLE and the board. And so for them, it was really hard to come here. So I think that the only possibilities that you have is or you come when you are very young and you start the whole process, or you can come in my position with a license, with a visiting license. I don't say if there is one best. I think that they are totally different processes. Thank you, Marina, for sharing that with us. And I was talking about the paperwork because I can imagine how much paperwork and you have to do with that. And my personal experience is sometimes our medical schools back home are not used to so much paperwork. And, you know, there is 
they were mailing things to my medical school by regular mail. And back home, regular mail doesn't work like it works here. So those documents never reach my medical school. They needed to be like delivered to me and me travel to deliver the documents. And they also let the translations. So you had to pass it through international agencies that were uh, translating all your documents. So, well, it was not easy. <laughs> so as we move forward in the discussion, I think something that helps and makes the transition difficult at the same time are the differences between the healthcare systems back home and the healthcare systems in the U.S. What are some of these unique aspects of the healthcare system in the U.S. in thoracic oncology that were different during the transition? I'm going to start with Suresh. Sure. So I would preface the answer by saying my transition from India to the U.S. happened almost 29 years ago. And things have changed both there and here. So those differences that existed then are very different from the differences that exist now. But when I made the transition, some of the main differences were in how the healthcare systems worked. In India, it was largely a social system with some private enterprise. And in the US, it's a very different system. And we, we know that. However, there are also some things in common. In India, people with more resources were able to access the private system and get more. And in the US, we still see, unfortunately, the scenario that there are people in our communities who don't have the resources, don't have health insurance, and are not able to receive the kind of care that is available in our hands today. So there are some differences and there are some similarities uh, from that standpoint. Uh, from a thoracic oncology standpoint, I think one of the Nice things in our practice is we have access to, you know, most uh, innovative medications, targeted therapies, immunotherapies in the U.S. And I realize that in many parts of the world, that is either not readily available or not available at all for patients. Uh, the access to clinical trials, the ability to initiate innovative clinical trial based on research that's done at your own institution by you and your colleagues, uh, that's something that we are all excited by because that helps us push the envelope forward and bring new discoveries into the clinic. Those opportunities are far and fewer outside of the U.S., I would say, based on my knowledge and talking to colleagues. To me, those are some of the big differences, access, clinical research, and also the availability of resources to support the care of the patients. Thank you, Suresh. Marina, we talked briefly about this when we were together in Arizona. What were some of these big differences in the healthcare system between here and Italy? Yeah, so I can tell you what I love from both of the countries. So what I truly love here is that you have a, a very early access to the drugs. So you basically, you do the clinical trials, the FDA approval, is quite quick and the day after you can use the drugs. This is something, as Suresh mentioned before, that is very far from the European reality because you know that we need to have a second approval, which is the EMA, the uh, European Medical Agency, which sometimes is different. So just maybe you remember this, the big story of the Pacific Regimen. So in Europe, you can't use uh, the Durvalumab in PDL1. Uh, negative. Then we can discuss about the value of this decision. But just to give you an idea that what it is uh, here, you can decide. If you have a patient's PDL1, 0% heavy smoker, you can treat this patient with Durvalumab. In Europe, no. 
The second point is that after the EMA approval, there is a negotiation for all the countries. So this means that the Ger- Germany negotiates the price with the company. Italy will negotiate the price with the company. And this means that sometimes you have the paper on the New England Journal of Medicine out and you have the drugs for your patients after two years, which is unbelievable and very, very frustrating. And also, this is why I started to have so many clinical trials, because the clinical trials represented the opportunity for our patients to have an early access to the, to the drugs. But the good part of Europe and also of my country is that when the drugs are approved, they are free. It is totally free for all the patients. You can be rich, you can be poor, you can be whatever you want, and you have a free access. You have a free access to the surgery, to, the, to everything which is in the thoracic world. So there are some people that they have a private insurance But the private insurance is just because you just want to have a private room in the hospital or you want to decide something, but it's basically you have exactly the same treatment in the public and in the private regimen. So it's really difficult to compare the two systems. I truly love as a doctor the idea that you can administer everything you want independently by the type of the insurance, by whatever you want. On the other side, when I was in Italy, it was so frustrating to have the drugs two years later. So <laughs> thank you, Marina, for sharing. I think each system has his faults, but I think is a big shock for many international graduates is the pre-authorization process, you know, the denies of antiemetics when the chemotherapy got approved. I think it could be very difficult. We are close to the end, but before we end, I would like to ask the two of you two more questions. One of these questions is, if you can change one or two things about the whole process, the whole transition, what would be that one or two things that you would change? And I will start with Suresh. Thank you, Narjist. For me, one of the overarching things about the whole journey was the uncertainty. In the sense, you could do everything right, do the exams, get great scores do the interviews, apply for programs, but it's not certain that you will end up with a residency until the day you actually are here and you're starting. There are also uncertainties about getting a visa to come and train in the US. Now, there aren't too many things in life with 100% certainty, but I felt that if there was a better way to at least have a better sense, what's the likelihood that I'll end up there if I did all these things right? And if it was in some way clarified to me, that would make me allow me to make an informed decision. So that's what I always went back and said, boy, I wish I had a better sense for how this will all work out at the end of the day, because the amount of time, the amount of resources uh, that is necessary to make this journey uh, is not trivial. And that's very true. I think we sacrifice so much to come here and nothing is certain. Even after you start residency and visas are a big part or coming to the United States and which you're waiting for a signature. And I think during the pandemic, getting a visa or getting just an appointment at the embassy has become journey of his own. Marina, what would be one thing that you would change about this whole process? No, I agree with you. I think that although you try to be prepared, you are always unprepared. So yes, I think that maybe 
more help for the social things. For, for example, for me, it took like two months just to have the social security number. I was without the bank, without the bank account, without anything. So it was quite difficult at the start, in particular during the pandemic, as you said. On the other side, I think that we are quite lucky because we have a very a community of doctors working in lung cancer that is quite united. So I received a lot of help also from Suresh to decide what to do and also to have some help on how to organize their life and also how to organize my program. So I would say that everything is uncertain, everything is hard, but you can find a lot of help in our community. Thank you, Marina. And that's a perfect segue for my last question. How can our audience support students, resident fellows, and physicians that are thinking about transitioning and training and practice in the United States? Marina, how can our audience help people that are transitioning like you did? I would say it seems that is a common sentence that you need a mentor. You need a mentor here. You need a person to share what you are going to do, to understand if what you are going to do is the right decision, the right place, and the right program. So I suggest to the people that they want to come here, not just jump here and just be totally alone in this scenario because it can be very hard. I think that there are a lot of people who made the transition that they are really happy to help the people that they want to come here. And I would strongly suggest to find, yes, people able to give you some suggestions, some help, and maybe also some concrete help. So it was not easy to live here in the first days. So don't be shy to ask. Suresh? I would say there are a lot of international graduates and American grads who want to extend a helping hand to incoming international graduates. And for those of you who want to help, one of the main ways you can help is uh, by being that first person that provides a helping hand for one or two of them or more if you can, uh, because that's all they're looking for, the first point of contact so they can use that to gain information and to get the appropriate support during the process. I would say the IASLC is a great forum. When you go to WCLC meeting, there are a lot of international trainees and graduates who are attending these conferences. They're always looking for help. And if you can spend some time with them during those avenues, or when you serve on committees with international graduates who are interested in coming, uh, those are great forums for you to engage with them. There are also opportunities to provide internship or externship at your institution. And my only regret is that there are a lot of people who write to me and I cannot help all of them possibly, and I help people when I can. But using those opportunities through professional societies like IASLC, providing long-distance mentorship, as Marina mentioned, and to be a source of information when people reach out. It may be just five minutes of your time to respond to an email or answer a phone call, but that makes a big difference in the lives of international graduates who aspire to be great physicians and great researchers. And I agree 100% with that. I couldn't be here today 
if the Dr. Coronado from the Fred Hutchinson wouldn't have answered my call email. She didn't know me. She didn't know who I was. And so taking five minutes, even if you don't have a postdoc position in your lab, that response to that email makes a big difference for many trainees outside of the United States. So there is so much to talk about, but we are out of time. I would like to thank all of you for listening. And I would especially would like to thank Dr. Garasino and Dr. Ramalingen for making the time to join us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of Lung Cancer Concerted. We hope you will tune in the first and third Tuesdays of every month to give us a listen. You can engage with us on Twitter at ILCLC. You also can visit our site and we hope to see you and that you hear us once again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concerted. You can find all our podcasts on our website, ILCLC.org and our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 